Aloha! You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. have a special guest with us today. We've talked for the last few weeks about peace players and the work that they've done throughout the world in the Middle East. And I'm going to bring someone that I've known for several years that I've always deeply admired to talk about peace players and the role that they're playing in the U.S. Sally Namani, Director of Peace Players Brooklyn, is here with us today. Welcome aboard, Sally. Thank you, Chad. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to to learn more about your book and to share a little bit more about Peace Players uh, in the U.S. Well, Peace Players, as you know, has been a passion of mine for years, and it's been a passion of yours for a number of years as well. And I want to start by taking our listeners through your journey of how you got to this point of being director of Peace Players. And I, w- I just want to start with young Sally growing up. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, what that was like, and basketball as a young person. I'm uh, from Nigeria. My family moved to the States when I was uh, young, um, relatively young, between you know, middle school years, 12 years old. And so uh, basketball and just uh, sports in general had always been a part of my life, even prior to moving to the U.S. I am one of uh, six children. I have five siblings, and I'm smack in the middle. I'm the fourth child. And my older brother is directly older than me. And so I remember when I was like three, four years old, my older sister kind of saying, kind of taking me and handing me over to my, my older brother and saying, all right, you look out for Sally. You make sure she's all right. And my brother kind of used me as his plaything in a way where like every new sport or anything that he learned about, he would kind of bring me along and say, hey, come check this out. So my brother and I used to play um, soccer, just pick up soccer at home. And the neighborhood that we lived in at the time uh, wasn't the safest. So my parents wouldn't let us go out. And so we would play like um, living room soccer and we broke a lot of things (laughs) in the house and always got in trouble. But that was where my love for sport uh, began. And even at home, we we always found ways to just uh, stay active. And then growing up in the 90s, you know, Michael Jordan was like a, a force. Everyone knew who Jordan was. Like, I remember the first time that we got CNN and um, they would always show like uh, NBA highlights and just watching uh, the Chicago Bulls and, you know, Scotty Pippen and those guys was, um, that's how basketball really, I was first introduced to basketball. And I remember just watching and saying, this seems like such a cool sport. Like, I would love to play um, basketball, but we never um, owned a basketball until I was about 11 years old. Uh, my brother traveled with his um, his god brother to Abuja, the capital, for like a summer vacation, and they stayed at a hotel for like two months. And there was a basketball court there, and my brother picked up basketball there. And when he came home, uh, he was able to come back with uh, a basketball. That was the first time I ever touched the basketball. Mind you, I had been a, a basketball fan for like five years at this point. And so that was- How old were you? How old were you when you touched a basketball for the first time? Um, I was 11, 11 years old, like 10, 11. Yeah. Yes. Summer after fifth grade. So about, yeah, between that age. And so my brother brought the basketball home and I remember just like playing around with it. And like, I felt like I could play and I started falling in love with the sport. And at the time, our uh, secondary school, uh, we had a kid who had just moved back from the U.S. to Nigeria and his parents were pretty well off. And they offered to build a basketball court at our school. And that was where I kind of started like playing, like shooting around, but I never really felt comfortable playing uh, with the boys uh, at the school because, you know, uh, gender uh, stereotypes and gender roles are very, very strong um, back home. 
And so my brother and I were playing. And by the time we moved to the U.S. when I was 12 years old, I really started taking basketball a little bit more seriously. And that was mostly because, you know, being in a, in a new country, um, it was kind of like my way of like making new friends. And um, like I remember during recess, just going going to the gym and just shooting hoops. And then from there, I was like, you know what, I want to play in high school. And it's been I've been playing basketball uh, ever since and as far as how I, my journey to peace players. So I, I mentioned this um, earlier about you know, Nigeria and our history of um, conflict. So from 1967 to 1970, uh, there was a war called the Biafran War. Some people might, may have heard of it, uh, but it was like the first documented genocide in Africa. And, um, you know, Nigeria has over 250 tribes, over 250 languages, and all cultures vary from tribe to tribe. And the one thing that unites people in Nigeria is our Super Eagles uh, football team <laughs> and Afrobeats music. And so I remember just growing up how, like, even during the um, Atlanta 96 Olympics and how, like, people just banded together around sports and, like, just cheering our, our team on in the Olympics. So uh, that's one thing I always noticed as a kid. Like, this, is, this was a time where kids or people didn't care what tribe you were from. We were all Nigerians. We were all the super eagles. Um, you know, just watching uh, sports growing up. And so I always knew that there was a connection between um, how sport can bring people together because, you know, I, grew, I was growing up in a post-conflict uh, country at the time. And I always knew I wanted to bring together my love for sport and how it can impact communities that are divided by, by conflict. You know, we lost family members uh, during the conflict. And so I have a deep connection to, not connection, but fascination with first, what brings us to violence and conflict and how could we post uh, conflict? How could we um, kind of start to reconcile and move forward? And I think your book is very relevant around issues like this. And I'm excited to uh, go a little bit deeper into um, what I've done with, Peace players so far in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and also now in the U.S., working in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Well, that's a that's an incredible backstory. I mean, we could spend hours, I think, talking about that and unpacking that and what it was like growing up in Nigeria in that environment, and then obviously at that age, at a really formative formative age, becoming an immigrant and moving to the United States how basketball is a language sometimes that can transcend some other things and some cultures and allow, allow people. I know that that sport has been part of the immigrant experience as well as a, as a leveling and allowing, allowing people to connect the gender roles that are there as a female basketball player in Nigeria as well. I mean, there's so many things that I, I see in your background and your story. You play high school ball. Where does that lead? So I played high school ball and, you know, following, um, and I had big dreams, like a lot of my kids now, like I want to play division one, division one basketball and uh, go on and play in the WNBA and all of these things. Um, but I wasn't recruited. Um, I didn't know about like the, uh, um, the basketball circuit. Like my parents didn't have an understanding of that and how to navigate that. Like I played AAU one year and I had one school actually, uh, um, St. Bonaventure was looking at me, but at the time the coach felt like I was a little bit too raw and she wanted me to go to like a JUCO school. And I was like, you know what? I enjoy playing basketball for fun. Um, I don't think I want to play hoops anymore. I'm just going to go to school and, um, you know, I'll go to undergrad and look to go to grad school afterwards. And so I went to Lehman College, which is part of the CUNY system um, in, in New York City. And... Um, during my breaks, um, within, within, in between classes, I would go to the gym and go shoot around because, again, this has always been kind of like my connector 
and my confidence. A lot of my friends, uh, most people I've met is through basketball. And so um, in doing that, I started making, of course, uh, friends and I decided, I was like, you know, maybe I should just play. And I, I walked up to my coach's office and I was like, hey, who's the basketball coach? I'm, I would love to learn more about the women's program. And so like my coach always says this, like, um, he never recruited me. Like I just, you know, I walked into his office and I was able to really impact the program there. And so I had a fun uh, four years at Lehman. Uh, we had a very successful team. We went in the uh, CUNYAC Championship Conference and playing in the Division III um, NCAA, uh, NCAA uh, Conference. And so I um, had a, a great time and uh, even going to a, a small school, um, a school where most of the, the demographic was mostly immigrant was huge for me because I grew up in a predominantly white uh, town and I in a lot of ways felt like my experiences before moving to the U.S. was kind of like whitewashed. Um, even my accent changed. And being at Lehman College and being able to connect with people like me who moved to the U.S. at around the same age, for me there was like this resurgence of like pride in who I was. And um, and, and, and sports and play, being a, a basketball player as well, like also built up my confidence. And in many ways, I realized how I was gaining so much from being in a sporting environment. And that, that continues to resonate in my work today, like um, especially in Brooklyn, like how do we intentionally create space where um, young people are not just playing basketball for the fun of it, to be good at it, but to leverage what the game provides to create other opportunities um, in other areas of their lives as well. So the professor in me has to ask you this question because you're a student athlete. What'd you major in? Uh, political science. Political science. What was your favorite book that you read when you were in school? Um, there's, there are some, some good ones. I have to say um, The Communist Manifesto by uh, Karl Marx. Uh, okay. Just because it was very layered. And prior to that, I did have... I didn't really have a strong grasp on like what communism was. Of course, when you you know watch the news, you hear a lot of like really um, not so you know accurate information on what communism is. But it was so layered. Uh, and there were a few other papers I can't remember off the top of my head that Marx wrote, and how he just really broke down the uh, the philosophy of communism. I thought was just really um, really powerful. So it's the first one that comes to mind. So. I got I got to go with that one. <laughs> I just put Sally on the spot there, by the way. And so she didn't know that was coming, but that's the professor in me is always like, okay, what'd you get out of school? So you studied political science and I, I'm assuming what, well, why did you study political science? What was the motivation there? Uh, a lot of it also ties into my, my immigrant story. Right. And, um, I, I knew that, you know, at the time, like my family, when we moved to the U.S., uh, it took a while before, like, I just became a citizen, like not too long ago. And so shortly after we moved to the U.S., 9-11 happened. And um, that stalled our change of status. And so for like many years, um, I was an undocumented student. And that limited a lot of things that I wanted to, to do at the time. And so um, I think that, that dealing with that adversity, um, I wanted, my plan was actually to go to law school after undergrad. And I wanted to really focus on the movement of people and how we um, and human rights and pertaining to immigration and uh, well, you know ball is life <laughs> and uh, I, I know that sport is my element and I, I, I feel like um, there are more tangible ways to influence at the individual level and you talk you know when you influence at an individual level you can really have a ripple effect 
And um, I feel like sport is such a organic and powerful way of, of doing that. And so, um, so after undergrad, I went to grad school for international um, development. And following that, I interned at the International Chamber of Commerce, um, the Office of the International Chamber of, Chamber of Commerce at the UN. And my work around there was really around like, um, how do we involve the private sector's voice in the um, post-2015 development agenda at, at the time? And it was great, you know, I had a, an amazing boss um, and uh, it was a unique uh, experience. But again, I keep, I keep going back to ball being life and just sports really being my element. And uh, I knew that I wanted to uh, influence at the individual level and at the communal, very local on the ground um, level. And so that was kind of like how my journey to, to Peace Players uh, started. This is one thing that I just always get excited about. You know, Peace Players isn't just a bunch of jocks running around <laughs> putting on basketball games for kids. Sally's like wicked smart and incredibly credentialed. You had Karen Dubelay on last week, who was a doctoral candidate at Bar-Alani University in Conflict Resolution. It's not just the game, but it's this combination of the game and conflict resolution and, and, and the people that have the passion for both, which clearly you do and you have all this cool experience you have this great education how did you find out about peace players and what made you decide you know what i'm going to give all this up and i'm not going to go back to nigeria or the peace players program in south africa i'm going to northern ireland uh, to become a fellow for peace players (laughs) that is a great question chad um you know, I discovered Peace Players at least two years before I applied, and I was just watching the program. Um, I followed them on, on social media. And the first time I came across Peace Players, I was like, wow, this is, I can't believe this exists. Um, this is something I, in the back of my mind when I was much younger, like I planned on doing something along these lines. I didn't know that it was already happening. And to see Peace Players, and, you know, at the time I was like, wow, it's, a, it's amazing to see that someone has taken this idea and brought it to life. And so I was following Peace Players and following the journey of the, the fellows. And I knew eventually like I, I would um, apply for a fellowship. And so, you know, prior to doing that, I wanted to uh, do some work around sports locally in, in the city uh, before applying for a fellowship. And so I worked with an, an organization called uh, Power Play NYC, uh, which is a, a girls focused organization that looks to um, provide opportunities for girls in underserved areas of the city to um, play sports. And so while at, uh, while at Power Play, um, and I did it through an organization called um, Up To Us Sports. It was a, an AmeriCorps year. So I was volunteering for, for a year, working two other jobs. All of this was the, the plan was to save, save a lot of money so that when I apply for the fellowship, I can go and go comfortably. So my plan to join Peace Players kind of started like maybe two years before I even applied. And so um, I, there was an opportunity to go to a professional development um, workshop and through the, the coaches program that I was a part of. And so I went and it was at Mercedes-Benz in, in New York City. And while I was there, I met a lady, um, Beth Eisen, wonderful, wonderful lady. And at the time, she was working for Laureus uh, USA. And Matt, you talk about Matt uh, Geschke, he was, um, he was her director at the time. And so I was talking to another coach who was there, and he was asking me, like, well, what are your plans after, you know, your, your year of service is over? And I was like, 
yeah, there's this organization, Peace Players, and I've been following them for some time. I'm planning on applying for a fellowship there. And she overheard our, our conversation and she was like, what, Peace Players? Oh, I know Peace Players. And, you know, my, my boss was a fellow in South Africa many years ago. I was like, wait, get out. And her and I started talking and she was like, hey, send me an email and I'll, I'll introduce you guys. And so she introduced me to Matt and uh, Matt reached out to me. We hopped on the call. I remember it was like at eight o'clock, seven o'clock, I think even. I remember going to work early just to um, have time to get on that call with Matt. And uh, I had a great conversation with him and he introduced me to a number of people. And after that, I applied. And uh, at the time, my hope was either South Africa or the Middle East program. Um, SA, of course, because it's in, it's on the continent and the Middle East program at the time, I think even now still had uh, quite a, a large number of um, girls in the program. And I knew I wanted to be in a, in a girl heavy uh, program. And so um, shortly after applying, um, I was also introduced to Nasipi at the time. And I was like, great, another African girl who's a part of this organization. And, and then I find out, find out that I, was, um, I got the offer to join Peace Players, um, but I would be going to Belfast. And I was like, oh, great, Nasipi is in Belfast too. So, you know, it's in, it's in Europe, it's a little bit different. Uh, and I was familiar with the, um, the troubles, the history of the troubles uh, there. And so... I find out that I was uh, replacing Nasipi and I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, great. Let's, let's, let's head down to Belfast and, and, and see what it's about. And, you know, prior to going, um, I kind of, you know, I had this preconceived notion of like, you know what, I've moved to the U.S. Uh, as a kid and I can settle anywhere. Like, I, I feel like I'm a nomad at heart. And um, when I got to Belfast, it was different. <laughs> it wasn't as, it was, there was some culture shock there. And, you know, Gareth always tells a story, you know, I learned how to drive shortly before going to Belfast. And so uh, driving on the left side of the road in a new country and a new job <laughs> was scary. And there were many times where I asked myself, like, Sally, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you can be back in New York and, um, you know, and, you know, the basketball community in New York was also very small. And I knew there were other things I could be doing um, if I was in New York, but for me, I've always kind of like just welcomed adversity uh, because the many times I've, 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 I've faced adversity and, and faced it with the fear and the courage, um, there was, there's always been greater things on the other side. And so that first year there was um, you know, learning about the, the, uh, the challenges there and a lot of times feeling like, who am I to have a conversation about this conflict? I don't feel like I, I, I'm equipped to have this conversation. Um, and sometimes I'm finding myself taking sides. Um, I had a good friend who was a pro of a, you know, a Protestant background and him and I would always like argue back and forth. And so my time in Belfast was one of the most challenging, but the most rewarding time um, in my personal and professional um, experience. And everything that I've, I learned and went through and gained there, has been monumental for me in the U.S. now, in my role in the U.S., and also just personally as a, as a, a human being. And so, um, you know, Belfast wasn't my first pick, but um, would I do it again, given all that I learned during my time there? Yes, I, I would. Um, and it was, it was a good way to just kind of like um, step away from my, my comfort zone. You know, I've always said I want to work, I want to work in Africa, and I even if it's back home in Nigeria and, you know, being in a predominantly white country for me was, it was hard for me to absorb. 
And the longer my, by, by my second year, you know, I started doing a lot of uh, like independent work in the rural side of Northern Ireland. And I started seeing more the need for the peace players work in, in that country because the divides are very stark in the rural areas um, in comparison to, to Belfast. And so, yeah, that's, that's my journey. And that was how I um, winded up in, in, in Belfast, Northern Ireland. What was your biggest takeaway? It could either be personal or just generally about peace building from your experience in Northern Ireland. Like what, what was the thing that the lesson that you walked away with from that experience? Yeah, uh, I would say that the conflict that we we don't always have a very clear definition of what conflict is. And prior to going, you know, a lot of my courses in grad school and undergrad, I remember I read this book. It was a memoir by a, a child soldier in uh, Sierra Leone. And so when I think of conflict, I think of just like really horrible experiences that people have faced. And when I got to Belfast, you know, at the time it was what, over 20 years after the 1998 peace agreement, uh, 18 years after the, that, that peace agreement. And because I couldn't see in real time how conflict, and physically, visibly, I guess, how conflict um, affected people there, it was hard for me to, because I had this in my mind. I had like, this is what conflict is. It's clear. You see it. Um, Oh, I, in my mind, I had a, a definition of what conflict is. And when I got to Belfast, I, got, I came to realize that sometimes it's layered. And because you don't see it on the surface and because people are not constantly talking about it, does not mean it's not there. does not mean it hasn't affected lives and continue to affect lives. And I recognize like, the importance of really having a conversation. That brings us to the U.S. Like in America, we've never had a, a formal, I don't know, reconciliation process after all that's happened to black and brown people in this country right and because we've never had that conversation we just kind of swept it under the rug and it, it continues to have um like we continue to see examples continue to see examples of you know we haven't healed from the, the turbulent history that our country sits on and so I think that, you know, in thinking about peace building through sports, I think sports is, is a perfect environment to have a conversation because everyone takes their guards down when you walk on a basketball court. You're not walking on a basketball court looking to, um, you know, have a, you know, to, to get into an argument unless it depends on where you're playing. But for the most part, people walk in with their guard down. They want to have fun. They want to hoop. They want to make a new friend or whatever. And so I think in that, that, sports really creates an environment for us to have those conversations and allows us to, to see the other person first as like my teammate. Oh, he's cool. Like we play together all the time before associating them with where they're coming from or what community that they belong to. And so I feel like that, that that's one uh, takeaway that I learned um, while there. That's really interesting. I also spent time in Northern Ireland in my case as a grad student doing an in internship for Encore in Derry, oh, wow. about roughly about the same age. And same thing, read a lot about conflict in books and was studying it in grad school and everything else. And then, you know, very different. I, I went to Ireland in part because that's where my ancestors were from. And I, re I remember I was working right during the peace accords in Northern Ireland. And I also came with this belief that, look, people don't want conflict. They, they really want it to be solved. Everybody wants peace. And 
I was in a conference and they brought in some people from the uh, South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission to talk about what they had done there and how South Africa had approached post-conflict by trying to heal those wounds, to do reparations, to do just a number of things around reconciliation. And that was led by Bishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa. And they were on a speaking circuit and Ireland was a focus because they were getting ready to sign these Good Friday Accords and and it was really more of a compromise than a collaboration, but this opportunity to go to healing. And they told all these wonderful stories and about what had happened in South Africa and some of the healing that had taken place. And then it became Q&A and this man stood up and he raised his hand and he said, okay, I really appreciate your stories. They're really inspiring. It's really clear in South Africa who the good people were and who the bad people were. The bad people were the people doing apartheid and the good people were the people that were fighting against it. And a few million on one side and 90 million on the other side. Like it was really, really clear. I'm just curious in Northern Ireland, who are the blacks and who are the whites? And there was this moment where the speaker froze because if you know, in Ireland, it's very 50-50 sort of split and both of them have a, a narrative uh, being the victims in this conflict and the, and the people that have been most hurt by it and the other person being the aggressor. It's a little bit different of a conflict. And as the speaker stumbled over that, this man got this huge smile on his face like he loved that there wasn't an answer to that. And I was struck by, you know, maybe sometimes conflict becomes so big a part of our identity that that actually taking it away threatens our identity more than to actually sort of have it. And so, whoo, I'm relieved we don't have to go through reconciliation. We don't have to do all the things that are in South Africa. And I brought that back home as well because I thought, you know, in the United States, we are what we should actually be what Northern Ireland was looking at. Um, because this is what happens when you don't do truth and reconciliation. This is what happens as communities remain divided and, and all the other problems that sort of happen in our country. Because while we legally passed laws that ended discrimination in the United States, and we can pass those laws that way, it didn't change the way that people saw each other in many cases, or the deeper structural problems that still exist in the United States with race and what have you. And we'd never done that process of reconciliation. And it brought me back home as well. And it had me learn a lesson too, but also the lesson that, look, conflict is addictive and it can become part of our identity, this us versus them sort of identity. And it's not always the case that people want to give that up, that in, in many ways, that's part of who they are. I define myself in part by who I'm not and and who my enemy is. And uh, anyway, it was a so interesting that we both had some really kind of formative experiences in Northern Ireland that actually now take us back to the United States. And so uh, you come on board in a very beginning of a project here at Peace Players in the U.S. And I think the first question that people ask me all the time, and I'll give you a chance to answer this, is it's sort of clear what the divide is in like the Middle East, like Israelis, Palestinians, or Northern Ireland, Protestants and Catholics or whatever. What is it that Peace Players is trying to do in the U.S.? And, and you can speak, speak either generally or just specifically about what's going on in Brooklyn. Yeah, so that this is a conversation that it's an ongoing conversation that we're still having. Um, we've, to a certain degree, has been able, we've been able to define and say, hey, we're looking to address geographical and racial, con racial uh, conflict within inner city underserved communities in the U.S., right? And so you look at our program in Detroit, uh, we're working with Arab, Hispanic and um, black communities in Brownsville, Brooklyn, for example, we're working in a two mile neighborhood housing development um, who have had a history of um, conflict over the years. 
and how do we create safe spaces for these groups to come together, right? And so, you know, I was just talking to, I was having a conversation about this with David not too long ago. And the challenge then becomes, okay, we know that the U.S. has a history of inequities and structural violence. And so if we're working in underserved communities, especially with um, Black communities and Hispanic communities that have been traditionally disenfranchised from fully participating in, in the U.S. Um, within, within our system, is it that we're looking at it through an equity lens that we support our young people, we create a space for young people to want to start to build these healthy relationships? And the question then becomes, now what? Okay, great, they're all friends, they're getting along. What, what does that have to do with the conflict in the U.S.? My vision, my hope for our program, especially in, in Brooklyn, is that first, our young people understand that the world is bigger and that they have every right to occupy space within this world. And I hope that they can gain the tools that they can use to really occupy and, and advocate for themselves within this world. And as we move and as we grow and learn, my hope is that we can start to create opportunities within our program for our young people to experience other groups, other people outside of this bubble or this community that they're growing up in. And so we've been able to kind of do that in spurts. Uh, so for example, with, you know, living in Belfast, uh, I had one of, I had a friend there who knew a coach who was coming to New York to visit and they were looking to play a, a friendly game with um, a New York team. And so I was like, oh, perfect. This is a good way for us to have some kind of intercultural exchange locally. And so we had this high school, uh, St. Patrick's High School from um, Armagh, Northern Ireland. And they came down to Brooklyn and their hope initially was just to play a pickup game and take some photos. But I, I, my thought was like, how do we leverage the time that they're here for our young people to really start to see like, you know, this, these conversations we've been, having, we've been having about the world being bigger how can we bring in another group of young people into this conversation? And so we had like a two-day um, session where, you know, the first session actually was we prepped them and kind of like, you know, shared the story of like Northern Ireland and we watched the movie and learned a little bit about what it's like to be a young person growing up in that community, uh, in, in that country. And so uh, when the, the Northern Irish kids walked into our gym, actually, they got there before we, we got there. They came in a little bit earlier. And, you know, they're, it's like a 20-man 20, 20 team, over 20 boys on a team with their coaches. And our young people are just, like, overwhelmed. This is, like, the first time they're in a gym with, like, white, like white kids. Like, not just white kids, but white kids from another country. And so everyone kind of walks in, like, not really sure what's, what we're going to be doing here. And uh, it, was, it was awkward. I'm not going to, like, I really, after that session, I really just commended our, our, our young people and said, hey, it takes, like, it takes courage to do what you guys did here today. And so, you know, during that time, uh, some of the young people from the, the uh, Northern Irish team shared about, like, what it's like growing up in their, uh, their town, which is a rural town in Northern Ireland, and how the conflict still affects their lives and how they can move, how, how safely they feel traveling within their um, town. And our young people also shared about like their experiences in Brownsville, how like if you live in a certain housing development, you, you might want to be careful going to another development to go play at their park. And so finding you know, those similarities and in those differences too in, in that space 
was so cool. And we had a we had a guest coach come in and she did like an athletic yoga session uh, where they had to work in like groups and pairs and threes to do things together. And I and I think that helped break the ice. Mm-hmm. And by the end of that session, you know, the plan was the following day we were gonna have like a friendly three team tournament which with our team, their team, and another like local Brooklyn team. Well, they got along so well at practice that they asked like, how can we mix up the teams? So we then created two teams. We had a, a Northern Irish, two Northern Irish Brooklyn teams. And like, you know, our Brooklyn kids speaking in their slang and their accent and the Northern Irish kids like, me because I, I maybe because I lived in Belfast, like I was just like just sitting on the bleachers, just watching it, and just for for being able to see them experience in real time, like it, the world is bigger. You know, at the end of the game, you know, they're exchanging their their quarter zips and like t-shirts, like they're following each other on Instagram, and that's just a one-off thing. Um, now imagine us really being able to do this in a, a more sustained way how that can really open our young people's eyes and and for them to you know from those experiences my hope is that they can take those and like i see it every day like the way their confidence is growing and how they're looking to do things they weren't looking to do when they first joined the program so i've been privileged with being a part of you know peace players brooklyn especially from when it started and seeing our some of our young people who joined in the first year to year three and how their mindsets are already changing uh, just because of this community that they're a part of and so um, to answer your question, Chad, it's, it's a question that we're still trying to answer. Um, but my, my vision and my hope is that, that all young people uh, gain experiences and tools to advocate for themselves and that we can really start to create an environment and create a space where we can bring in the other, another group and we can start to have really useful conversations on how, you know, how um, growing up in America affects them differently. And how can we come together and advocate um, for for our um, communities? One thing that I think peace players, all the sites hold in general, is these core values that we talk about. See people as people, inside-outside transformation, a culture of collaboration. These are these are values that I talk about in in the book Dangerous Love as well. And it's really interesting as you move from site to site. So in Northern Ireland, see people as people means if I'm Protestant, can I see Catholics as people? Or if I'm Catholic, can I see Protestants as people? It's been interesting to hear feedback from a lot of the coaches in the U.S. that that given the situation in the United States, for many of the young people that are participating in our program, it starts actually by seeing themselves as people. After a society and a community sees them as objects, their entire life and their family as objects or whatever, that the process actually starts even earlier, right? About how do I see myself as a person, given all the messages that are given to me every day from so many different angles around there. And and what an incredible journey that has been for some of our participants in the US. And then I, I love this idea of ma- seeing the world as bigger and seeing that I can operate in the world and maybe there's things that I, I can't do everything and maybe I'm powerless in many ways, but there are things that I can change and that I can do and that I can connect. And then I just love this story about how sport teaches collaboration. It opens up the opportunity, right? So it starts with this Northern Ireland team and a team from Brownsville playing basketball together, which is collaborative, but then it leads to friendship and mixing the teams and people starting to hang out. And we use this term dangerous love and and many of it was inspired by peace players because it does feel dangerous. Like, I don't think people understand, but for those young people, when they walk, when these kids from Northern Ireland walk into the gym, 
that's 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 a dangerous space for them. Mixing with other projects is dangerous uh, for them, both both physically and and emotionally uh, dangerous. In that, whenever we're striving to see people that we see as objects or see us as objects as people, that is scary. It requires vulnerability, and and I use the word love in part because my experience working with peace players is that the young people don't learn just to tolerate each other, right? That, that That's not the goal is just to be able to say, okay, I won't harass you in, anymore or I'll leave you alone. That really what it produces is lasting friendships, connection where the young people actually deeply care about other people. And then that care then spreads back to their families and to their communities as well. And and, and I've seen this, especially in the Middle East, where young people are actually advocating now for the other side on social media or Facebook because of these experiences that they've had. And that if we're really thinking about healing conflict, it can't just be enough that we tolerate each other, though that's a start. That's better than killing each other. But actually caring enough about another person that I'm bound up in your success and I want you to have success the same way that I want to have success. And I want to work on solutions to problems that are going to benefit everybody and if there's anything that I think the United States needs right now, it's that attitude, right? It's that attitude that we, that all of our outcomes that we should be experiencing together in this country that's so blessed with so many things should benefit everybody. History that we have of racism, discrimination, of, of segregation, of division is something that we can actually overcome and solve our problems together. But it really requires that that sense of, of love. And there's so much polarization in the United States right now. I deeply appreciate the work that you're doing. For the skeptics out there, Sally, when they end sort of on this question, that say, okay, great. That's all great. How in the world is a bunch of kids in Brownsville, Brooklyn, playing basketball together going to change or move the needle at all on this? I think there's a reason that you've been involved in Peace Players all these years. I, I think for most of us, we've seen this work on the small scale, but what do you say to people that just say, look, basketball is not going to be enough. This is not really going to make a big difference in the world. What, what, is, your, what is your response to that? Yeah, my, my response would be, what would these young people who are part of Peace Players, what would they be doing if they were not here? What would they be exposed to when they're not here? Um, and so, and, and the reason why I, I would ask that, and the reason why I say that is, if you ever go to Brownsville, like in the, during after school hours, two, 3 p.m., um, you see young people just getting out of school, right? They're hanging out with their friends in the corner, making their way home, what have you. There are so many, there's just constant, constant negative influence around them. There's a lot of positive, Brown, Brownsville has a deep sense of pride and there's a lot of really amazing people doing awesome work in the community. But there also, we know like the, there's a lot of negative influence there as well. And as a kid who's impressionable, um, it's easy to, to get caught up in those things. Um, and in asking that question, what would a young person be doing outside of if, if they were not in a program like this? I mean, <laughs> we, we, we've seen enough examples of it. Right, and he, I, there's a principal in Brownsville who always says that she opened up a school to close a prison, and and that's because there aren't enough positive influences for young people, and they want. It's not like they don't like you know. Sometimes we misunderstand uh, teenagers and young people. They're craving this space, 
But if it's not available to them, they're, whatever is available is what they're going to go for. And a, and a lot of times it's, it's gang activity from like elementary, middle school age, young people are already being recruited to join gangs. And so if a young person is a part of a gang, God forbid they get, they get a charge, a felony at age 16, their life outcomes is already limited. This is a country, you know, that's just the reality of the country that we live in, right? And so if a young person joins Peace Players, let's say in middle school, and they're part of the program from middle school up through high school, and they're engaging with positive role models twice, three times a week, and not just on the court, like we stay connected outside of programming. Like, and that's what's really worked well for us in the face of this pandemic. We've always had like a text group chat where coaches, myself, I'm in the chat where we're checking in with our young people. We're using it to communicate as far as like transportation to and from practice. So we're very reachable to our young people. It's not just a program that's there and they go once a week and then they leave. We're very much connected. And so our kids know that if they, if they're, if they're not doing the right thing in the neighborhood, that somebody that knows me or knows one of our coaches will see them and they will come back to us in some way. And I think that also plays a role in the way they carry themselves. And so it may seem small or it's just, it's basketball. What's it going to do? These kids, these kids are just throwing a basketball around. It's changing a lot of young people's life outcomes because if they can be a part of a positive environment, kids crave that. And I know this because they keep coming back. Like we've been able to, once we were able to get our program and strong, we've been able to really retain young people, our young people in our program, and they're really committed to, to it. Um, and so if this space didn't exist, what other, what else could be possibly um, influence them? And so um, our program is very young and super, super grassroots right now. Um, we're not in a space where we can say, well, we, we're going to create the next such and such, but I, I honestly believe that um, the environment that we have, even me as a, an adult, like it's, <laughs> it adds some balance to my life being a part of this community with our young people and just seeing how they've grown um, in the last uh, two, three years. And so if we can have an alternative that young people can be a part of, uh, where they can be exposed to positive experiences to um, build up their lives and to advocate for themselves and to build a, a, a more equitable uh, U.S., I think that we, we've done well. And if basketball is the medium that we're going to use, then that's great. That's even better. We're, we're speaking to them in a language that they understand. And even with this shutdown and the, the quarantine, most of our young people are on social media anyway. They spend a lot of time on their phones. So, it's, again, it's, it's forcing us to meet them again in another element where they're at. And... Um, you know, each week, myself and our coaches were saying we're we're challenging ourselves. How can we bring some element of in-person programming into these Zoom virtual programming? Because it's really important. Because this is probably where we're going to going to be for some time. And it's to to make it make sense and to make it um, a positive experience for them. We have to continue to bring that that environment that they've been a part of in person to these virtual calls. And so. Sports seems small and it seems very trivial, um, throwing a ball in the basket. But um, I first time I've seen how much it's it's impacted our young people in a short time. And these are older kids, so imagine a young person who joins the program 
and elementary school all the way through high school and how much um, just being a part of it could, could impact their lives and ultimately their communities as well. She's selling the money. One of my heroes has spent the last five, six years of her life with peace players dedicating her life to creating better life outcomes for these young people. And there's this conflict theorist named John Paul Lederach who talks about the moral imagination. And the idea is that we have to, violence is a lack of imagination, right? We have to think of other ways to solve our problems. And here the work she's doing is creating space that gives young people the opportunity to collaboratively problem solve in ways that aren't violent, that lead to others, other outcomes and better outcomes. And it's what we need is more and more spaces like that. I wanna thank Nike who has been critical in their support of peace players and really the startup of this program in the US could not have done it without their support and their commitment to using sport as a way of creating spaces like this in the US. And so here's my my last pitch, third podcast in a row for peace players. I wrote a book, Dangerous Love. Much of it was inspired by my work with peace players about how to resolve conflict at home, at work, in the community. If you go to dangerouslovebook.com and order the book, you'll see a link right there. I'm donating all my profits to the book to peace players. They need your help in the wake of COVID-19 right now. You'll be helping create that space for some of these young people to have those life outcomes. You'll get a book that will also help you create some space for yourself to solve the conflicts that you have in, in, in your life. We're going to be using some of this book and creating new curriculum uh, with peace players right now, peace education curriculum as well. And so... Please, 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 if you haven't already pre-ordered the book, go to DangerousLoveBook.com, click on the link. I'll donate all my profits to Peace Players. You'll help an amazing, worthy cause, and hopefully you'll get some help in the conflicts that exist in your life. Sally, thanks so much for all you do. You're a great guest. Loved having you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for writing the book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Okay. Aloha. You've been listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. See you next week.